Hello and welcome to Bottled Up. My name is Sunny. I'm one of the co-founders and host behind the mic. And on this episode of Bottled Up, I am joined by the incredible Matthew Jackman. Matt lives with bipolar affective disorder and complex post-traumatic stress disorder as defined by psychiatry. Is a sibling caregiver to a younger brother and sister who live with enduring psychosocial diverse abilities and has lost their mother to suicide and consequently their grandparents due to stigma. Matt is a global mental health advocate promoting human rights, social justice and lived experience as an academic science from public health and mad studies disciplines. Matt is also the first non-binary person we've had on the podcast, which is incredible, especially as we celebrate Intersex Awareness Day and create more dialogue for people for whom represent the diverse sexuality and gender community. They are speaking at several different events over the coming week, which I've put in the show notes below. So please, please, please do check them out as some of them are very much over the next couple of days. I also do want to say that there may be some triggering topics covered in the podcast as Matt goes into some of his past and present living experiences. This is one not to be missed. And without further ado, this is Matthew Jackman. I booked myself into a hotel tonight, by the way, because I was having it. I, I felt like I was having a breakdown. I've got fucking 300 emails to go through. So I was like, rather than rather than uh, head down a potential prevention, uh, they call it like a park, like a pre-hospital admission, I thought I may as well just check myself into a bougie fucking hotel and, you know, <laughs> have a, a weekend to myself, which is exactly what I'm going to do after this podcast. Uh, where, whereabouts? Um, I'm going to um, QT, um, which is sort of a newer place with a lovely okay. rooftop pool. Um, and, you know, I've got a really nice view of the city. Um, and then I, I really want to go to W, you know, the uh, W on Collins. That's a new one. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm such a sucker for like a skyline view, a spa and yeah. a rooftop pool. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you find me at Marina Bay Sands any day. Um, I'm just, yeah. W Melbourne Marriott? Yeah. No, you deserve it. Well, you know, I just need to check. I need to check. Like I, you know, like with your dad, I need to check. This is my rehab, you know. So, um, yeah, I I volunteered with the Chief of Peer Services in LA County for a few months and she was this amazing um, lady, um, black feminist, lesbian with, um, Mm. lived with schizophrenia uh, but was an organisational psych and she she ran the peer um, portfolio, like kind of like the chief nurse or chief psychiatrist in Victoria. Yeah. And I was kind of her under study and and obviously she was on 170 you know usk a year i was like that's my kind of lived experience role um but she just fucking i said karis what do you do when you get unwell she said i just fucking book myself into a hotel for a week i was like now that's a psychiatric admission right like that is that, so i'm literally i'm just taking a fucking leaf out of her book from several years ago and i'm like you know what i'm at that point in my life where this is self-care and autonomous you know empowerment whatever <laughs> You guys, you guys should line up like your own, um, your own trip to a hotel and like do a video call. Yeah, I, I, I did tell her recently. I said, I, I Karis, I'm starting to, I'm going to implement your idea at some point because I'm on the verge of a breakdown after the whole non-binary mm. body nonsense. Um, yeah. But anyway, but hashtag yeah. viral, you know, how yeah. exciting. <laughs> no, all the best. I mean, uh, your, your checking would be around two or three, so um, hopefully the podcast doesn't go until then. Um, yeah. Try and make the most out of it. Yeah. Um, Matt, awesome to have you on board. Great. Thanks for having me. Very excited to, um, to dialogue together today. Yeah, me too. Uh, look, it's an absolute pleasure having you on, mate. Uh, I think this has been uh, in the works for some time. I think we got in touch probably this time last year when I jumped onto that Global Shapers meeting mm-hmm. um, quite randomly. Um, I think at that point you had just been awarded Mental Health Advocate of the Year. Mm. Um, and in my five minutes that I had to intro myself, I introed myself and I was like, Matt, I want you on board for the podcast. I love that, yeah. <laughs> and he, I was going to say, unfortunately, at that time I was also in hospital receiving ECT and had a blackout for about six months. But anyway, but yeah. there you go. That's living experience, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, there you go. <laughs> Um, well, they, look, it, uh, I think that probably like leads, leads me into like our discussion. Like, um, my first thing I was going to say, like, it baffles me how much you're balancing and, and with a smile on your face and, 
we were just talking a moment ago about how you've checked yourself into a hotel tonight um, mm. with a bit of uh, R&R, um, which I know you're looking forward to with <laughs> a massive smile on your face. But um, as with any journey, I know there's always ups and downs. And um, yeah, it's incredible the work that you're doing. Um, and I know we're going to be touching on to your story and some of the work that you're doing with um, Tactful, if that's tactfully, the right Tactfully, Tactfully. Everyone <laughs> fucking says Tactful. God damn it. <laughs> It's it's not a tactfully, tactfully. Yeah, tactfully. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't care. Whatever. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Uh, well, in, instead of instead of me uh, telling your story, I thought I'd pass the baton over to you. Mm. Um, who are you? What do you do? Um, and yeah, what's the reason that you've got involved into the space of uh, mental health advocacy? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm Matt Jackman. Um, I guess I'm I'm no longer a cisgendered male. I was up until a week ago, so I identify as non-binary now and mm. um, really happy living my life deconstructing all the labels that have been thrown at me from a gender, sexuality and, and psychiatric or medical mm. discourse in my life. Um, so it's part of my journey. I came out as pansexual as well. So not only do I not associate myself with any gender and feel quite gender fluid and I wake up and do whatever I want, um, mm. I, you know, I realize I'm attracted to people and personalities and I fall mm. in love with people. Um, it doesn't matter their genitalia. Um, so I've, mm. I've been in a process of shedding the past week, mm. really, even. So it's really, it's great timing to have this discussion. Um, mm. What's led up to that, though, interestingly, I guess, I, you know, I'm a, I'm in all things lived experience or living experience at the moment in terms of international advocacy and activism. And that was born out of intergenerational trauma in my family around, uh, yeah, mental health. Um, and I always like to put a feminist lens on my family's experience and lineage um, as essentially my nan didn't really want to have kids and was pressured into having children, uh, which led to her telling my mum she didn't want children. Um, and, of course, that led to my mum's own trauma and they had a very acrimonious sort of relationship. Um, and, yeah, my dad met my um, sorry, my mum met my dad and he was a lot older. Um, and basically my mum's my parents really um, stopped supporting her um, when she didn't fulfil their dream of going to medical school and, uh, you know, they were sort of working class wealthy in a way, like came from a long lineage of, um, of uh, read, yeah, blacksmiths, um, mm. sort of Irish blacksmiths, Irish Catholic blacksmiths in, in, in the inner east of Melbourne. And, um, yeah, mum always, I think, felt very excluded going to like a really um, wealthy private school um, and always felt a bit othered by the other girls. My pa told me that, you know, girls spat on her and when they would go on their overseas trips, mum would go and visit her nan, you know, her mum's family mm. in Dalesford and they were sort of like, yeah, working class within a, in a, within a wealthy environment. Mm. Um, and I think that that all sort of led to a lot of distress for mum, yeah, yeah, as a result of sort of, that context but also the family context at home being mm. very cold um I say all this because it resulted in my mum's really severe mental health issues you know having three kids by the time she's 24 um you know in a violent relationship at the time with my father um very codependent on one another and uh yeah after my brother was born I was a very jealous three-year-old and tried to drown him which speaks volumes about how much care and attention was provided to me at the time mm. um I was quite a difficult child and, yeah, mum's mental health really deteriorated from there and, um, yeah, you know, she all she wanted was kids, I think, until she realised that she didn't have a life of her own because mm. um, I was reading notes the other day from her health records that, you know, she was at her best when she was a mother and she, she mm. wanted to be a mum but I think it was just she, was, she had no support from her parents, um, no support from my dad at the time um, or little support and, um, yeah, and very young. Um, mm. So anyway, um, fast forward a few years and mum's in and out of hospital. I'm a very over-parentified child and looking mm. after my two young siblings and quite scared of my mum, to be honest with you. I, you know, I can recall I have memories of like when mum and dad were having fights, running out to go with dad or hiding in the van when he was going to go visit a friend for the night. Um, so clearly that spoke volumes about who I felt protected by. Um yeah, and then mum unfortunately suicided when I was nine. We were in foster care at the time. We were in and out of foster care for a number of years because she had 
basically said that she was going to take her life with us um, and we were very we were at very high risk because of the family violence situation as well mm-hmm. um, and and just yeah you know living in severe poverty um, living in public housing so it was a real change for mum who grew up you know going to Genizano and and then and then was living in public housing you know with her partner who was violent and and so I had this really interesting mixed class perspective um, and which I which I, I still feel like I carry today. Mm-hmm in sort of being like this posh bogan. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, basically, um, yeah, I, you know, grew up in the outer southeastern suburbs, a very mm. multicultural area. I always felt dislocated, though. I never felt like I belonged. I didn't mm. really, um, you know, no one really ever sort of understood me or, yeah, I kind of felt like the outsider my entire mm. life. And I think mm. being a queer person as well, that didn't help and realising that I had diverse uh, sexual orientation. Um, and and at, at that time, you know, going to a public school in Springvale uh, in, mm. the, in the noughties was, um, you know, there were people getting bashed um, for being gay um, and including from people who identified as bisexual themselves. So it was not a safe space. Mm. Um, and that led to developing a really severe anxiety um, issue. Um, so in grade five and, and year eight, I went to school about 20% of the time. And I think that was as a result of processing a lot of the trauma. Um, I used to hide under the bed and listen to the radio in the morning and the school mm. council would be knocking at the door at nine o'clock mm. saying, Matthew, where are you? Um, yeah, but year nine, things change and they they put me into a lot of leadership activities and roles. Mm. Um, and I think because I was such an over-parentified child, I had a lot of leadership skills, mm. good, good problem-solving skills. <laughs> I was a fucking survivor, baby. <laughs> I was a survivor. And that was, you know, of course, like many of us, um, mm. our, our resilience and, and learning and learnings of adver- from adversity, mm. you know, result in leadership. Um, mm. skills because we it, it, it cultivates a sense of self-belief I think and mm. a confidence in I can do anything because mm. um, if I've been through that then I can really do anything and my part my dad's partners after mum passed away were all quite violent and, and had issues right. with alcohol as well and were right. again domestically violent so mm. I didn't have a great relationship mm. growing up to women actually mm. when I think about it my nan my mum my dad's partners um my dad was no saint, as I mentioned, but mm. he's he's a very reformed man and I really mm. respect him and love him dearly um, for the man that he's become. Mm. So, yeah, cut forward again. You know, I went to, so, I, yeah, grad, graduated from school, um, was vice captain in primary and secondary, always <laughs> second best, you know, um, and one house captain whilst, uh, you know, my co-captain was smoking weed out on the oval <laughs> and uh, I was rounding up the troops forcing <laughs> Page. Mm. Um, so I was a bit of a character, mm. is what I'm trying to I'm trying yeah. to uh, frame here. I think <laughs> yeah. I've been, I've always a bit eccentric, always a bit of a cheerleader. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that was seen from a young age, mm. uh, irrespective of my sexuality. I think I was always a bit of a personality. Mm. Um, so yeah, then yeah. I I started again. The, my anxiety was very severe because I spent my entire childhood trying to hide and perform, mm. um, uh, you know, as a result of both family trauma but also uh, and relational trauma but also my sexuality. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I tried to take my life at 19. Um, I felt so suffocated by being in the closet mm. um, and not being able to live my true self. Mm. Um, and Dad, Dad built a new home out in Cranbourne and that was it for me. Like that was really, really isolating that year that we mm. spent there. Um, I just, I had no friends. Um, a new I, suburb and everything. Pardon? Like was it like a new suburb? Like a Yeah, it was a new suburb, right. yeah. Looked out to the power lines. That was our, that was our, our next door neighbour was the bloody power station. <laughs> um, it was, and it was, it was kind of, it was beautiful because obviously we grew up in a really shit home. Mm. Um, Dad paid like $140 a week for mm. like a three-bedroom home. Um, there were holes in the floor. Um, it was it was so dilapidated. It's not funny. It was really gross um, growing up in that. But you know that's what happens when you know he was a courier looking after three kids on his own. Um, mm. So yeah, um, yeah. Cut yeah. forward, I guess you know to all that. Um, I 
was obviously trying to hide myself from first year uni kids. And um, yeah, after that, I think after coming out and realizing that it was either I take my life or I'd come out like mm. I did, I had an ultimatum with myself. I couldn't live that life anymore. Mm. Um, I, I started to blossom and, um, you know, when I came out, I failed three of the four subjects. Mm. Um, but in typical Matt, Matt Jackman fashion, I, I got a HD <laughs> for the other, for the subject that I didn't fail. Mm. Um, and <laughs> yeah, three of them were really like hard natural science subjects. And I had no interest in ever doing that. It was just, mm. a, it was just a degree to get into uni. Cause I mm. always wanted to go to uni, even though both of my parents didn't, um, yeah. And my pa was a medical scientist and always wanted to be a doctor and, he was a lecturer at RMIT. So I think I had that in the back of my mind, but my parents really didn't role model any of that mm. to me. Um, it was just sort of self-driven and belief. Mm. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I ended up getting into social work because I grew up with social workers mm. everywhere. Um, they oh. drove me to school from foster care. They they helped my mum. They came out and visited the home. Um my last memory of my mum before she passed away was her telling me how mm. much she loved me and she was in a psychiatric hospital um, and, and unfortunately, yeah, suicide probably I think about a week or a week mm. and a half after her last admission at Dandenong Hospital. Right. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I have a close affiliation with Monash, I guess, mm. uh, Monash Health. Um, yeah, and then obviously social work found me really. Um, social work's like my life partner, to mm. be honest. I'm a bit of a cult. I'm like a cult leader when it comes to social work. I recruit everyone I can because um, I'm so passionate about mm. what social work means. Mm. Um, obviously, it can be co-opted like any discipline um, by the dark side, but I think that um, there's something beautiful about being in a values-based profession that um, promotes human rights and social mm. justice. Like that's very rare mm. to study that, mm. uh, to be a trained social activist and social adv advocate which is what social workers are, I think that that's really beautiful, mm. you know, to dedicate a career to doing oh, that. Absolutely. Um, so I'm very passionate mm. about uh, stealing people from psychology and mm. stealing people from medicine mm. and stealing people from law because mm. people think people don't really understand what social work is. So mm. I do a lot of retraining and, and show them the sorts of spaces and roles that I've entered mm. and been in. Um, it's quite, it's quite so, misunderstood social work as well it is um yeah and, yeah and, it's yeah. an it's an oppressed profession because it's predominantly women yes um and always has been yep. so um social work well. as, a, as a discipline evolved out of the suffragette movement of the late 20 uh, 19th century mm. so um it's a social movement profession actually mm. um which i'm very proud of but but it's just meant that of course you know, medicine and law, there's sort of an, an, an epistemic injustice in how we knowledge and mm. how we privilege certain knowledge over others. Uh, you know, lived experience, mm. of course, is at the bottom of the scrap pile. Mm. And uh, sociology is not much higher up. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Melbourne Law School and Melbourne Medical School, are, you know, the, the, creme, the creme de la creme. Yeah. And I can say that as having done a subject at um, MLS, um, I just didn't, I didn't quite, I, I just didn't feel like it was me. Um and yeah, I'm a social worker through and through anyway. So um, it, it, I'm very proud of that. It's funny. It's funny. You and you and I would have been in the same cohort this year. <laughs> for, yeah, wouldn't that have been funny yeah. if we were in the same course? Yeah, for JD. Um, but no, before before we touch on, because um, I know I know there's a there's a lot to speak around uh, social work and um, mad studies, which we'll touch on. Um, yeah. Just want to take it back just a couple of steps um, and then we'll touch on that. Um, your experience, you mentioned it was quite fragmented with women growing up. Um, yep. And obviously, you know, you've got your dad in the picture as well at this point and, mm. and your siblings. Um, mm. You know, at nine, there's, I can't even begin to fathom what was going on. And so um, question to you is, um, what was your relationship like? Because obviously you're, you're balancing this relationship with yourself, processing everything that's going on. Um, yeah. But at this point yeah. in time, um, you're also balancing the relationship you have with your siblings and your dad as well. Um, mm. What was that like? Um, what was, you know, obviously, you know, on one hand, you're processing everything that's going on. And then on the other hand, you're also balancing this relationship that you have with your siblings and dad. That's quite a bit um, at the age of mm. nine. Um, how did you how did you navigate that or, or did you not navigate that? Yeah, well, it's a great leading question, yeah. Sonny, because, um, yeah, I didn't deal with it. Mm. I, that's, and that's what trauma does. That's what the body, the body is incredibly intelligent. And with trauma, it, you know, it, the body prunes away memory. 
memory mm. to, to help you survive. Anything that's too painful and overwhelming for your emotional capacity is really pruned. Mm. Um, so we forget things. We forget traumatic experiences. Um, right. We dissociate. Mm. We detach. We do all sorts mm. of amazing things that are protective mechanisms. Mm. We don't, they're we protective don't mechanisms. That, do we, when that's happening? Well, they're medicalized as problems and symptoms, mm. actually. Yeah, right. you know, dissociative identity disorder, mm. you know, borderline personality disorder, you know, all these, they're all they're all um, psychiatrized, medicalized as a problem. Um, but they're actually survival strategies and they're they're extremely intelligent mm. um and and are, and are designed to help us survive uh what is just completely overwhelming for the mind, the body, and the spirit. Mm. Um, and I, and that all caught up with me in my mid twenties. Um, so it's a good segue into mm. post social work and yeah, working in lived experience consultancy and, you know, as a systemic advocate in forensic mental health. And yeah, I was very badly bullied in one of the roles and that, that really led to my, my second, uh, yeah, I'd call it kind of my first suicide attempt because it was more related to my mental health. I feel like the first suicide attempt at 19 was completely related to my sexuality and mm. feeling just suffocated and and shamed mm. uh, for being who I was, uh, which sickens me now. It really mm. sickens me to think that oppression has taken lives mm. um, and could have taken mine. Um, so, yeah, you know, I was sort of in my mid-20s and um, I was really, I entered into a really severe, severe depression where I was, you know, peeing in a Gatorade bottle in my bed. Mm. Um, I couldn't leave. I was, my, my brain felt like a prison, mm. uh, like literally imprisoned. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't think properly. I was so, so anxious to have any conversation with anyone, even my best friend, Sam. Mm. Um, and I think everything finally caught up with me, you know, in terms of the mental health, I started processing, uh, I think because of the vulnerability, the state that I was in, I'd finally, I'd always been running on on empty, mm. you know, uh, treading mm. water my entire life. Um, and even the way I speak now, like I'm always, I'm, I'm always hypervigilant. Mm. I'm always in survival mode. My brain runs at like a billion miles an hour. I'm trying to do 10 different things right now in my brain. Um, but that, and that's survival. Mm. Like it's had to do that to protect itself and be quick and think and be creative and problem solve directly as a result of the traumas mm. of my childhood, mm. you know, but that's turned into a bloody superpower mm. um, because it means I can do 10 billion fucking things at once <laughs> and be told by everyone to slow down. <laughs> well, no, I'm not going to slow down. I'm just going to do mm. me. Thanks. Um, so anyway, so, yeah, I, I, I saw my suicide attempt at that time as going home to my mum. Mm. It was spiritual. I had a spiritual crisis and I was a similar age to my mum when she passed away. Uh, it was a similar time as well. There were a lot of um, kind of ceremonial, um, I guess, factors that kind of fed into this spiritual crisis. Um, and, yeah, I'd been in bed for several days and had said goodbye to my best mm. friend and, um, yeah, I was ready to go. You know, I I tried to take my life the same way that my mum did. Um, I was very unsuccessful um, and was very angry with myself that it didn't work mm. out. And I, I drove through the garage door to my dad when it didn't, mm. uh, when I, I wasn't successful. Um, so it was a real, there was a moment of just, I what have I done mm. as well? Um, uh, yeah, and I was just so upset that it didn't work. Um because I, th- I felt like now I have to deal with the consequences mm. of that. Um, but, yeah, mm. that, that led me to going to hospital for the first time and um, I was in hospital for three months mm. in inpatient and in, re- in rehab after. So it was a long time. Mm. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I made a few people cry along the way, mm. like the, the, uh, the psychiatric triage lady. I think because, you know, it was a relatable story. Like people were like, I get it. I get why you wanted to die. Mm. You know, I was saying, and at that time I was telling people, I was like, I'm not dying. I'm going home. Mm. Like I want to go home, Mm. you know, like why don't you get it? Mm. Um, Like I'm at peace with that as I was at peace with my mother removing herself from the pain. Mm. So it became a really unhealthy cognitive belief Mm. that because my mum did it, it made it okay, Mm. you know, and... So it's com- it's really complex for people I think that lose their parents to suicide because it's a, it's a modelled behaviour and and your own grief in accepting it mm. makes it acceptable for yourself. Mm. 
as a as a strategy. Uh, I kind of view it as like it's like an eject button. Mm. When I'm when I'm overwhelmed, my suicidal thoughts start mm. coming back um, because it's a way of I need to go. I need to get out. I, I, I'm done. I'm over. I'm going to eject because I'm 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 you know the plane's going to crash, so I'm going to eject yep. out early. Yep. Um, but anyway, and then I, I was put on really high levels of antidepressants that, to the point where I in, had an induced manic episode right. um, and was travelling the world and mm. doing amazing things <laughs> and, you know, you can only imagine my mind operates like this now as a baseline, mm. let alone when I'm in a, a, a heightened, elevated mm. stage. Um, it was quite the experience. I was at, you know, went to WHO mm. and was telling everyone where to go, left, right and centre <laughs> and saying, you know, lived experience this, lived experience that. And obviously, you know, my name uh, started to get mm. recognised as someone that actually knew their shit mm. from their lived experience and their and their, their good and bad experiences from service use mm. as well. I've had, I've, you know, I, I'm careful to balance. I've had some amazing experiences in accessing services because I'm privileged in some social locations. Mm. However, I'm not in others and I've had some terrible experiences and I've witnessed some terrible experiences in psychiatric facilities. Mm. You know, I've had seven hospital admissions. Three of them have been public. Four of them have been private. So I have that too, you know, because, you know, the access that I can get depends on where I'm at yeah. in my income and my employment, which is completely related to my mental yeah. health. This, just the story that you've been through and, like, to come out on the other end, um, I, I can't, like, it, it'd be cheating for me to say that I can relate to that. Um, but in, in the same way, it's, there, there's a lot that you've been through. And then one thing you've always shared, the antidote to shame is pride. Um, and, yeah. and expressing yourself and being free and having that outlet. Um, you mentioned you had that sort of ultimatum to yourself. Um, okay, this mm. hasn't worked and now I've kind of got to deal with it um, and express myself and be free. Um, how did how did that take place? Like, um, was it something that you kind of were just like, okay, plan A is out the window, time to do plan B um, and just and be free. Mm. Like, um, you know, I don't give, you know, zero shits about what other people say. Um, yeah, how, how did that process happen and, and, and how did you go about yeah. that? Because I know mm. for me, like um, coming from a South Asian background, I have quite a bit of dissonance with that. I like yes. um, yeah. on one hand, um, I'm so um, grateful for the platform that we've created with Bottled Up. Um, I think that mental health is something we should all be freely talking about. Um, but mm. in our community, it's something um, there's this saying basically, which goes um, like, um, which means that what will other people think? Because there's such a reputational um, piece to the whole piece. Um, and, Absolutely. And so it's often very hard. And, and, and to me, that's bullshit. Like to me, I think that um, there's so many things that are going on in, in different families that I interact with and, and nothing's being said. And fair enough that nothing's being yeah. said because family matters are family matters. But um, we all experience it, yet only very few share it. So... Um, mm. I'm quite keen mm. to know like how you navigated that within yourself. Cause, um, even for me, I, I, I can talk about it like this, but there's parts of my identity and there's parts of my story, which, um, are quite hard to share. And I think that's just the process that I'm going through at the moment. Um, in sharing. Yeah. 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 Well, well, thank you for sharing that. You know, I think it is important to, um, you know, shame kills people mm. like shame kills people every second of every mm. day. Um, and I think that's really important to acknowledge and, and absolutely in mental health, different cultural um, contexts and diversities and, yeah, the shame is so strong mm. intersectionally in other spaces and I need to own that as, as someone that's, you know, white and, and middle class. Mm. Um, you know, it's really important that I own that, that I, I, have, I have privilege mm. in, in being able to have space to, to have that. I mean, in saying that, I was very shamed for mm. my experiences too, but it's different, isn't it? You know, like we, I, I, can, I can never compare my experiences of mental health mm. to yours, you know, uh, because they're all cultural. And in a way, like we all have our own cultural mm. context in our family, mm. right? Like culture is so, you know, we, we throw culture around like we're talking about ethnicity and race, but Culture is everything. Culture is your sexuality, your gender, your spirituality. Like it's 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 the worldview. It's the lens that's brought to your world, whether that's at a family or relational family community, you know, socio-political structural mm. context. Um, so, but but you know, from a sort of racial, ethnic, you know, um, perspective or context, mm. absolutely, shame's very high, and I think that's why we, yeah, we haven't seen a lot of, I guess, mental health services in the global south. 
um, which in some ways is a good thing because it's highly medicalised mm. and psychiatrised and the last thing we'd want are people just institutionalised. But, you know, we see all sorts of things like people being locked in cages mm. in the Philippines and in India. You know, we don't want that yeah. either uh, where, they, where people have got no options but to lock their relatives away because they don't know what to do, you know, chain them to a tree. Like that, that literally mm. happens in, you know, in Asia and mm. South, South America and Africa. Uh, it's very confronting. Um, but, but it's because they don't have any other mm. options, um, tools, you know. So, yeah, I think there's this is an emergent space uh, where we try to, you know, work in international mental health but at the same time in decolonised ways where that are culturally and lived experience led and driven, you know, community approaches, mm. uh, and that will be different for everybody community. Um, so I'm so sick of this, the, like the global mental health mm. movement's very problematic because mm. it basically says, well, you know, if we just throw in a few psychiatrists to Zimbabwe, mm. you know, the problems will all just mm. resolve themselves. Well, I'm sorry, but psychiatrists yeah. joke and it doesn't even work mm. in Western countries. So, um, yeah, but anyway, sorry, long-winded answer <laughs> no, no, again. I, um, I think this is a really good segue into um, what I think would be a really good focus uh, for this conversation, which is ex- your your experience and, and, and the work that you're doing within MAD studies um, because yeah. um, what I often see is there's often a sort of back and forth with psychiatry in labeling things as um, disorders um, without actually looking at yeah. all the other intersectional pieces that underlie that. Um, and um, we were talking just <laughs> before the podcast started about the DSM um, being sort of this magic book <laughs> of, of different things, mm. but it's <laughs> yeah, uh, the magician at play. Um, but um, yeah. yeah, like I, I, I want to ask, you know, what is your, what are your thoughts on psychiatry? And, and I think this might be a good segue into, you know, what is mad studies and, and, and the work that you're getting involved yeah. in? Cause um, it's really fascinating. And I think you can definitely speak to this more than I can, but um, mm, in mm. researching it, I like, yeah, I, I, I think the privilege that we have with people having lived experience, I think that is wonderful. Um, and I, I don't know why that isn't already being used as a platform um, to shape um, mm. systems, to shape structures, to shape uh, experiences in society. So um, quite keen just to get your take on, on all of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, lived experience doesn't make mm. money. That's why it's not privileged. Mm. You know, it's any, anything that's privileged is monetized in a, in a micro or macro mm. economy uh, within mental health, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so I think I should probably talk about my career, yeah. to be honest, to, to take, frame take this. So Because I, I realised that I talked your head <laughs> off about my up until I was in my mid twenties and I'm 31 now. So even though I've got a baby (laughs) face, you know, great smile. Um, So, so yeah, I, I worked as a lived experience consultant, as I mentioned Mm. earlier in forensic mental health, which is sort of the modern day asylum. I worked in the prisons. Mm. I ran groups. I was an advocate. I was a social worker. Um, So I kind of traversed both social work and lived experience roles in that space. And that was really good to help me understand how organizations operate, how institutions and asylums Mm. operate. Um, and how to bring them down and dismantle them, you know, in terms of the discourse um, and, you know, problematic medicalization of people's suffering. Um, from there, I, I taught very early. I did a guest lecture first year out of uni and I absolutely loved it. And I thought, wow, I really like being on the stage. Um, shock horror. Um, and, uh, yeah, from there I, st- I, I started teaching maybe three mm. years out of graduating. I was back teaching social work. <laughs> Um, I think just because I was so, I'd worked in welfare since I was 20. So I'd already worked in the space Mm. for a long time prior to graduating too. So I felt quite senior and yeah, I've, you know, supported a peer work team in a, in an inpatient psychiatric unit, um, which Mm. was just horrific for me because people were treated like a factory line. The discharge coordinator would come in, the nursing coordinator would come in in the morning and say, we've got seven people in emergency coming in that need to be admitted. Which two patients are Mm. leaving today? Like sick, mm. really sick. Um, it's mm. a sick system, right? Uh, no, no concession for you know mm. who's ready. It's about yeah. who needs to go. Uh, that same person, you know, threw around things like, oh, you know, that patient's as mad as a cut mm. snake, and very sanest mm. language, um, and highly institutionalized, and good person. Good, lovely human being, but this is the problem. The system, the system mm. is the problem. The institution is the problem. So. Yeah, taught, researched, um, and then I, uh, yeah, through a few hypermanic binges, kind of mm. travelled the world and met up with all these amazing lived experience leaders and, 
kind of aligned with the World Federation for Mental Health and started doing work with WHO and writing papers. Um, I was the, the inaugural Western Pacific Regional Representative for the Global mm. Mental Health Peer Network. So I was in that role for almost three years from 2018 to last year. Um, and that really kind of embedded me within the international lived experience mm. space, um, which led me to finding MAD mm. studies. Um, and I found MAD studies through retraining. After social work, I retrained as a right. peer worker, as a lived experience worker, um, which I absolutely loved. And I was just like, wow, this is so radical. I'm being trained to be me. <laughs> um, you'd never think that, you know, being human with like another human mm. would work. I mean, what a <laughs> radical concept. <laughs> Um, you know, Carl Rogers was on, onto something when he talked about being person-centred. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the psychiatrization of disciplines means that we, we view people through one lens, mm. like a medical lens, and it's just not, it's completely mm. inhuman. Um, and, and, yeah, it never captures the full mm. picture, the holistic picture. So, um, yeah, the, the interest in MAD studies, I mean, MAD studies is really um, a, an amazing discipline because it's not just a discipline, it's based from the, the history of MAD people, um, the activism mm. and the movement, the MAD movement more importantly, which sometimes is referred to the, the consumer movement mm. or survivor movement, ex-patient movement, um, you know, disability movement. Um, it depends how people kind of yeah. categorise their experience and, and their experiences of, of mental health and service use because we all have different experiences depending on our level of mm. oppression or privilege um so um yeah but so mad studies is basically yeah it's a field of scholarship theory and activism about, about lived experience history culture and politics about people who might identify as mad or some of those other labels so it's sort of originated from canada the us the uk mm. and australia so again we've got to think about how is this you know re-perpetuating potentially colonialism um, and it really draws from other disciplines in similar spaces like women's studies, critical race studies, queer studies, you know, ethnography. It's it's sort of, um, yeah, it's multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the discipline is that it's all about activism in mm -hmm. the community. It's not about creating an ivory tower of knowledge. It's about um, challenging epistemic injustice um, and, and bringing in other knowledge bases that we don't value, like the arts world, the creative world, and all the different knowledges that we use to make sense and mm -hmm. meaning of the world. Um, so now I'm, a, I'm basically a mad academic. I'm a mad identifying academic, which mm. is really cool. I said, look, I said to the dean that recruited me at Stotts College, I said, look, if you want me, this is how I'll be framing the role <laughs> um, because this mm. is my training and this is what I'm passionate about. So all the units that I'm the coordinator of next mm. year, which there'll be six of them, um, will all be madified, criticalised, radicalised, politicised, <laughs> whatever you want to call them. Um, so, yeah, so it's just it's an exciting time really to, I guess, be thinking about uh, the political analysis and discourse mm. in mental health. So, you know, how does neoliberalism and capitalism have an impact on mental health services on the ground? You know, it's about challenging and critiquing why we use the DSM, why we frame people through a medical mm. lens. You know, does this work? Is it working? Uh, what are the alternatives um, so there's lots mm. to unpack there because there's a lot of different spaces that we mm. can take it. The work with Scots College um, is first of its kind, um, delivering the course. And so where, where yes. do you think yep. we're at in terms of the research and in, 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 in the same way that, um, yeah, like in, in the same way that psychiatry is um, so heavily relied upon, it, it bypasses all these other things that exist within society um mm. so quite keen just to know where you think the research is at at the moment um and yeah. where we're progressing do you think that this is um something that will revolutionize the way we go about peer work support work um, mm. um and what we're doing in the community yeah. yeah absolutely i think uh yeah i think interestingly i mean mad studies is is the, the research mm. is the activism right they're kind of they're much of the same and, and we try to hold that space as as mostly mad people mm. within mad studies we mm. do have allies of course that don't identify as being mad or identify with any of those other mm. consumer labels um but I think, I think you know, we're, we're on the cusp of something, I think, because particularly with COVID, the pandemic, there's, there's a literacy, there's a global literacy around mental health and the, and the importance and awareness that, oh, my God, our environment and social context <laughs> have an impact on our mental health. Oh, no. no, you'd never think. Oh, my goodness. Employment, housing, education. Yeah. What? That's so <laughs> radical. I thought that I just had a brain yeah. chemical imbalance yeah. in my brain. Well, that's an absolute mm. load of crap. 
It's not even scientifically mm. proven. Honestly, this whole brain chemical disorder thing is just a way to oppress mm. people that have come from marginalised intersecting communities. Um, you know, obviously there's parts of this, there's parts mm. of this that are true. You know, there's always going to be a biological yep. component because we're living biological yep. creatures. But the power, as you said before, the power mm. is all situated in mm. that perspective. There's no, there's no real retentioning of power away from the psych sciences, psychiatry, psychology, mm. psychiatric nursing, the medical discourse, to all those other disciplines of knowledge mm. that we have, um, you know, the social sciences, um, the indigenous sciences, the cultural sciences, the anthropology mm. sciences, um, and obviously that all encompasses, you know, lived experience and recovery of lived experience. Um, it's just, it's, it, it kind of is mind-boggling mm. really when you think about it and you think about why, yeah, why, why, why do we have this system operating? Who's, who's kind of driving this medical discourse? And then you think, oh, big pharmaceutical mm. industries that are kind of re-perpetuating myths to sell for fund mm. um, and fulfil, you know, uh, macroeconomies. And that's absolutely mm. what happens. When you go to a GP, do they test your neurotransmitters? Mm. No. You know, they test your blood levels for diabetes, but they don't, you know, there's no, there's no, it's a, it's a subjective mm. load of crap. Um, you know, this is a dark, this is a very dark system um, that is completely monetized within a capitalistic, uh, neoliberal, Western kind of, um, you know, colonial, patriarchal, mm. whatever you want to call it, um, system, institution. It's an mm. institution. Um, so Mad Studies is about critiquing that and bringing truth, you know, bringing, bringing truth and a critical and political discourse to mm. mental health um, because a lot of people mm. aren't aware of this um, and a lot of people self-stigma and take in the medicalised stories that people are told mm. by the system. Oh, I have an illness. Mm. It's not like an illness. It's poverty. You know, there's no pill for racism. Um, mm. Sorry, you know, mm. uh, that's the truth. Um, there's no pill for homophobia. I'm so there's no no uh, sertraline mm. or you know whatever antidepressant I've taken in the past that's mm. going to resolve that. Um, that requires social movement and social justice, mm. you know, change building, um, and it requires agitating institutions and structures mm. that are oppressive. Uh, the personal is political, you know, as I say in feminism. Um, so I think it's uh, you know we're on the precipice of something because you know there's a masters of mad studies now um, in in mm. Scotland in Edinburgh at Queen Margaret University and I'm the first Australian to be undertaking nice. that course in January yeah, which is really congrats. exciting um, and yeah obviously there's the yeah you know my mm. mad identifying role which is the first of its kind mm. I think in the world I don't know anyone else that is you know mm. employed as a mad academic and it's it's to subvert psychiatric discourse mm. to say fuck you. <laughs> Um, we have many other ways mm. of understanding the human experience and, and shedding light on what's a really dark, um, yeah, really mm. dark space. I think um, you touched on a really good point uh, around oppression and the article that you shared with me around like the poverty mental health nexus. Um, mm. What I'm and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and have a go at trying to articulate this, but um, each like. You, you talked about that person that you met uh, in New York or in, in America, like, um, um, you know, black, queer, um, coming from, you know, all these, yep. like, um, these, these different parts of our mm. identity. Um, and then when you couple that with yeah. neurodiversity and, and all these other things um, that, you know, people have uh, as part of their identity, it creates these layers of oppression yep. and, and these layers of separation mm -hmm. within themselves and within the community that they're around. Um, how do you see... I guess ways we can support people um, that that do have mm. these um, that this lived experience, um, or, or or people that yep. um, are very vocal around um, you know all these different parts of their identity. Um, how do we go about supporting yeah. them? Um, yeah, if that mm. makes sense. It's yeah. a really complex question because there's so many Parts. different um, yeah. junctures, so many different systems that mm. need intervention. Like systems change and reform, mm. of course. You know, we need, uh, like I, I think I kind of touched on it before, we need social justice movements. We need the MAD movement to intersect with all mm. those other movements. You know, feminism, Black Lives Matter, disability movements. Um, there's lots of movements that are very disjointed. Um, so I think if we all come together, you know, as marginalised mm. communities, and often they mm. all intersect, of course, you know, experiences of sexism, homophobia, racism, mm. madness, um, because, yeah, madness is really the centrality mm. of trauma. And, and when you're oppressed, you experience trauma from society. Mm. 
It's oppression is trauma from society. It's trauma from community. It's relational trauma from other human beings telling you where to go when they think that you should be silenced and that your existence isn't worthy Mm. as they are, you know. I'm talking Mm. about those, you know, privileged, uh, you know, cisgendered, white, heterosexual, Mm. uh, upper-class men that are able-bodied and able-minded that, you know, think that they can mansplain Mm. their way through the world. Um, yeah. There's many good men, of course, but um, <laughs> but you know there are there's there's still a very dark institution that wants to mm. hold on to to that power, um, and that's where the problem mm. lies. So we, you know we need inside advocates and we need mm. outside activists to kick and scream <laughs> like I do, um, and I think I think yeah I think it's through social justice mm. movement building because um, we we know from history that it's social movements that mm. change societies. Nelson Mandela. Um, that Mahatma doesn't really. Gandhi. Like Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, all these people that were very vocal about it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we need we need mad leaders like mm. Nelson Mandela mm. around race. You know, we ne- we now need mad leaders to to mm. lead the charge and to say this is not good enough. And you know, the science actually doesn't support psychiatric discourse to the extent that you're telling mm. us that it does. Um, sure, medication works for some people. It's still a band aid. Like medication's never a cure, even though it's kind of spoken mm. like one. Um, and yeah, there are many other ways of supporting people through peer models and approaches. So, you know, to the DSM, you know, the DSM can go fuck off quite (laughs) frankly. Um, we have the power threat meaning framework, which is all about understanding people's, uh, experiences from a non-diagnostic humanistic Mm. framework. And, you know, how has power impacted their distress and vulnerability? Um, how have threats impacted that? How have they made meaning from that experience? Mm. You know, it's about, it's not about what's wrong with you. It's about what's mm. happened to you. It's a complete paradigm shift from medical discourse, which is what's your problem and how are we going to treat it? How are we going to treat your symptoms? You know, mm. you're a problem to what's happened to you. I want to hear your story. Mm. Tell me about the traumas you've experienced. Tell me about how you've made meaning of that. How has that impacted your power and social location in the world? Um, you know, this is a radical mm. paradigm shift that's very hard to agitate because the medico-legal discourse is so, mm. so strong as mm. an institution in general, but in mental health, it, mm. it just as much. So, you know, again, it's that epistemic mm. injustice again where, you know, the, the, the knowledge construction of the world, and this is to answer your question too, we need to challenge what we, what, what's conceptualised mm. as research. What's, mm. What is science? You know, this is this, these are deep mm. philosophical mm. concepts that 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 centre around. You know, madness is. You know, we, we talk about mental health like it's this like thing, like mm. men, mental health. Mm. Mental health is us. Mm. It's our living experience. It's our soul. It's our spirit. It's our being. Like it's not this other thing. Like it, it's central mm. to everything. Um, and if we don't start viewing it that way, we will continue to live a life of, you know, neoliberalised mm. misery. I mean, the world's yeah. dying. I, you know, so I, I so agree. are we. You touched on something that I'm quite passionate about, and it's this idea around um, mental health is very much a continuum. We all have it, just like we have our physical health. And I think um, it baffles me that um, we create such a distinction between our identity and mental health as if they're two separate um, things that don't coexist. Mm. Um, and so mm. one of the questions I want to ask is, you know, as human beings, we all have biases. Um, it's it's probably shaped and grown as we've grown up. We have I've had biases growing up towards my own culture and um, the way I view yeah. um, Indian people. Um, and so I feel like the only way we can start um, progressing as a society is when we start to introspect and challenge those biases that we have. Um, I guess, and, and this may or may not be relevant to you, but um, have there been biases that have existed um, or... Um, you know, we've, we've always got this um, idea of oppression around ableism and sanism and, and, and things like this, which are all biases that yeah. fundamentally exist in society. But um, have you had biases that have existed um, within yourself? And, and how have you gone about challenging those um, and being more open-minded? Because I think um, listening and, and being more open-minded um, of each other mm. and, and the community mm. that, that we're in is very much the starting point to progress. Um so yeah, yes, yeah. Quite keen to understand that and dissect that. I know it's quite a loaded question, but um, yeah, yeah like, I, I think it's a message that goes out there as well because people listening will want to take something mm. away of like, okay, hang on, I've got these biases that exist in my life, um, and I, I do want to take change yep. um, and and change that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Can you ask some more simple <laughs> questions, please? 
Um, and yeah, I, you know, I've grown up in a racist context, uh, mm. patriarchal context, sexist context. You know, we take mm. we take it all in, don't we? You know, we take in and and we sometimes mm. internalize, even if we're from our own community. Uh, you know, I'm sure I've been internally homophobic mm. before. Uh, you know, I'm sure I've been racist at times in my life before. Um, absolutely. You know, I'm mm. sure I've been sexist. You know, at times, like mm. I think we all are to some extent. You know, without even sometimes realizing. Um, and and it just takes a lot of self-reflection, you know, critical, critical self-reflection on, you know, what's going on, you know, you know, what's influencing that, what are my values associated with that, am I acting in line with my values, and then being reflexive about it, like what I'm mm. actually going to do about it. Like I'm so sick of people mm. just ideating all the time. Like I couldn't give a shit about your ideas. Mm. I want to see action. Um, you know, it's action that changes mm. the world, not ideas. Um, so... I think that's that's something I'm very passionate about, actually, because um, I feel like some people in my own mental health mad community mm. ideate a lot and just talk, and mm. I'm a walker. You know, I walk the talk. So, um, yeah, but that's how I've navigated through a lot of a lot of critical self reflection, and I've been trained in doing that as a social worker. You know, we have to we do a lot of mm. unlearning, you know, of our upbringing and and um, of our values and constructions of how society and community have influenced us in really negative and pejorative ways. Um, and yeah, you know, a great example is ableism mm. and sanism. You know, words like mm. you know you're an idiot, you're an imbecile, mm. you're crazy, you're mad. You know, they're that they're all uh, terms that have been used historically, um, both to to denigrate, but to categorise people in institutions like mm. imbecile, idiot. Um, you know, they were intellectual disability categorisations in the asylum mm. for children from you know different developmental stages. So it's it's sick. Like it's really sick that people, uh, you know at least who are aware of, of that history, mm. still use that language. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about anti-Sanism mm. activism and, you know, raising awareness to what ableism looks like in a mental mm. health context because, you know, we can call it homophobia, sexism and racism, but we're a long, 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 mm. long, long way away from mm. ableism and what that means. Um, yeah, mm. and it's really sad. So, again, long-winded answer. Sorry. It's, um, it's really inspiring to see how you're dedicating your life um, to this purpose because um, I, I think when you spoke about Nelson Mandela just a moment ago, like we do need activists like him that actually push the needle forward. Um, mm. And I, I, can, I can tell just from this discussion that you get a lot of your purpose, a lot of your drive, a lot of your passion. Um, one, from like the system that you've been through and two, the experiences that you've been through. But also three, I think yeah. um, you being a in, a in maybe in somewhat of a privileged spot, being in Australia, um, growing up in such a um, um, diverse society to sort of push that needle and create that dialogue as well. So it's a great point. Yeah, even just being an Australian, we don't realize how lucky we are. We are mm. so so lucky. When we travel the world, people are like, mm. how are you able to do this? Americans only mm. get two weeks leave mm. a year. Um, you know, even and that's another privileged country. Like we are, our incomes are so much higher in comparison to the expenses mm. that we pay. In comparison to mm. save in England, you know, and these are privileged, you know, colonial mm. countries, right? So it's like, you know, we're. But that that also is a great opportunity for us as Australians mm. to lead because we, we we've been given yeah. material resource to be able to do yeah. international work, you know, rather than be mm. this little siloed mm. asylum, um, you know, which a lot of people come to Australia for. It's an asylum. It's a refuge from the mm. trauma of their community back home. Uh, it has been for since its conception. Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> I won't say conception actually, since its yes. uh, stolenness. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's just really, I think we're in mm. such a privileged position to be, yeah, to be completely honest with you as Australians. And and the world looks to mm. us in lived experience leadership. Mm. We are a leader when it comes to, uh, you know, we've got, we now have a director of lived experience role being advertised right now and it's $200,000 right. a year. That position does not exist anywhere else in the world and that's in Victoria because of, as a result of our yeah, Royal Commission. <laughs> so, um yeah, even Sydney looked to us in terms of mad or lived experience or consumer academics. Um, so we and, and I complain all the time <laughs> about how shit it is. So it speaks volumes about mm. the relativity, doesn't it? You know. So so Melbourne again, even Melbourne, we are we're a hub. We're we're actually a, mm. like a leading city, uh, probably one mm. of the lead cities in the world that's doing this lived experience mm. leadership work and activism. And and mad studies is probably 
yeah, we're mm. we're the hub of mad studies in there Australia. Hey, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, there's a yeah, and I yeah. think empathy is a quite an important ingredient in all of that because even if we haven't necessarily gone through the same experiences that um, someone else has, I think having that empathy to see their point of view, their perspective, yeah. um, and actually taking action on that, I think that is a that is a big piece. Um, yeah, we need allies. Mm. We need allies. You know, not everyone's going to encounter the mental health system. Not everyone has the privilege yeah. of even yeah, exactly. accessing a mental health system. Um, yeah. Some people choose not to, and that's mm. probably for fucking good reason. I mean, there's probably times in my life where I would have liked mm. to have chosen not to access the mm. service system too um, mm. and not be psychiatrized and, you know, put it, you know, mm. put medical labels on me that, you know, mm. didn't make any sense. Um so I think it's, you know, I, I mm. call to action you, you know, mm. like I need your allyship um, in, in mm. this social justice mm. movement. It's, but, yeah, Matt, um, we've, we've covered so much ground uh, over the last hour. Um, I know you're doing some awesome work with uh, Tackfully. Um, if you could, mm. yeah, just, just share what that's about. I know that has just recently launched um, and some upcoming events. Um, I think that are in the pipeline. I saw on Instagram um, that there are a couple of ones that you are speaking mm. at as well. So absolute powerhouse from what I see. <laughs> All right. Well, so tactfully, the Australian Centre for Lived Experience is an organisation mm. I've founded. Um, and really it's as a revolt to working in government mm. and oppressive institutions with absolute people that just have no idea really um, around lived experience, um, you know, at Veteran Affairs, uh, National Disability Insurance Agency, Department of Services. There's so many bureaucrats that just, they just have no idea and they're privileged and they're blinkered and they have biases like what we are talking about before. Mm. Um, and they don't get it. They don't get why people don't engage on the ground because um, they're operating, they're making judgments and assumptions from their own life experience rather than, you know, from any particular mm. training as well. Um, so I've had it, you know, I've, I'm going back to academia and, and and going back to, you know, teaching, which I love and research and supporting student learning, co-reflection and co-learning because um, that's mm. how I run my classes. It's about creating equal spaces where everyone's a learner, including myself. Um, so, you know, paying, again, paying attention to power. That's how, that's how mad academics roll. Um, so yeah, Tactfully really is a one-stop shop for all things peer and lived experience or living experience. So it's, you know, provides an, an NDIS service, you know, peer support, peer recovery coaching, peer support coordination. Um, obviously it covers all the other mm. things that I do, training and education, um, research, consultancy and systemic advocacy, most importantly. And I'm, I'm heading, Tackley's heading down an international NGO path where I really want Tactfully to be a key stakeholder with um, WHO representing the Mad Voice because that's a missing mm. it's a missing organisational uh, key stakeholder at WHO in my experience. And I'll be mentioning that tonight. I've got a, I've actually got a focus group with WHO nice. tonight on lived experience advocacy um, and and how they can sort of integrate that from an institutional organ pers- uh, perspective. Um, so, yeah, we do a whole host of things. We have a number of MAD students. You know, we have a coming out process. Um, and, yeah, we're working on a lot of community activism projects like, uh, mm. you know, MAD Pride events where we hit the streets or, you know, run groups that mm. are around art and music and then, you know, be able to mobilise and use that as a, you know, through a gallery or um, just basically mm. doing anti-Sanism work at the, on the ground, you know, which I, I love. Like I'm such a survivor. Mm. I'm so thrifty. I love applying for grants and just mm. seeing where things go. And I, I love taking like 10 billion <laughs> calls during the day and, you know, not being micromanaged mm. by someone and, you know. And, yeah, so we've got a number of students, a number of volunteers, and I've employed my sister, which is lovely because nice. she's always had issues with employment. And um, it's a real, you know, family mm. and community affair, um, which is lovely. And that's what we wanted. We're about to co-locate with a community capacity building, ecological mm. justice collective out in Footscray um, as of next week, actually. So I'm really excited to, again, it's about allegiance mm. and partnership building, right? Um, so um, it's great to find spaces to nourish our organisation. Well, gosh, mm. you know, there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. um, I'll, I'll put uh, information in our show notes around Tactfully and where people can find you. But um, for those listening, where can people find you on socials, um, personal or even organisational, the, the organisations you work with? Um, absolutely anything. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really have boundaries anymore. So um, to me, Facebook's actually my international mad community. So it's a, it's a great way that I engage. So, I, you know, I'm happy if, if people are passionate and don't hassle me every second, I'm very happy to, um, mm. you know, be Facebook friends <laughs> to an extent. Um, but, yeah, LinkedIn yeah. is really, I think LinkedIn's a good place to follow me. I'm sure I've capped out of connections, you know, um, hashtag celeb. Um, so um, you're going to have to follow and I'll just follow back and you can message me. Um, yeah, you know. And then from there, I can, I can, yeah, I can give you my email if you want to talk further. Um, but yeah, I think LinkedIn's probably the best, probably the best one, unless you're in the kind of mad activist space, mm. which I use Facebook for um, to connect mm. with all my my community. You know, oh, it's my community, cool. and I get a lot back from that. One thing I haven't mentioned is why I'm so mm. passionate about all of this, and part of it's because I. Uh, you know, mm. using pain for purpose, you know, that concept of pain for purpose for my own story. But it's also the legacy of my mother. You know, mm. I, I live in her shoes now and, um, you know, coming pansexual, I've, I've shed all these awful institutional mm. oppressions. Uh, and we said at the beginning of the call, like it's about everything, everything mm. in life is a spectrum. Um, absolutes of anything is not human. <laughs> so I've, I've just been able to shed absolutes from my life. And it's very liberating. But, um, but yeah, the passion is still very live. You know, my brother and sister still live in public housing on the disability support pension, um, still live with quite intense, you know, distress. Um, so, you know, it's very real to me. And they're my babies, you know, and I love them dearly and want to be, when my dad passes away, I'm in. Mm. I don't have an inheritance. So I have to work very hard, you know, to prepare myself for looking after, you know, and supporting them and capacity building them and the family so that, mm. uh, you know, it's survival. Um, and the other thing is that I didn't grow up with a community. I never felt like I belonged to anyone or anything. So when I found the MAG community, it, I, I finally felt like I, um, you know, mm. I had a, they were my people, you know, I'm getting a bit choked up and emotional, but, you know, like the, I finally found a community that I felt like I belonged to. I didn't even feel like I belonged to the queer community because mm. of the toxicity and internalised homophobia. Um, but the mad community just offered something different and I just felt, yeah, I just felt so, mm. I don't know, so loved and embraced. And there were a patient, mm. I want to kind of end on this. Um, <laughs> now I'm sounding like the <laughs> host. Whatever way you um, <laughs> But I, well, I, I, I end as in mm. like I just want to provide you with this, important a patient when I was in hospital for the first time was experiencing a spiritual crisis you know which psychiatry would define as you know Mm. schizophrenia psychosis you know delusions hallucinations um in the peer world would say Mm. unusual beliefs um and she mentioned something about if she wrote she wrote out something for me I didn't spend that much time with her but she wrote out on like a piece of a4 paper um, something along the lines of, you know, those that go through uh, life's trials and tribulations and traumas and adversities, you know, come out stronger. Because um, um, mm. I've been reviewing all my notes, my my health record notes. Um, so it's been a bit of an emotional time, obviously going through all yeah, of that um, as well. Yeah. So she said she she wrote me this when when I was being discharged. Um, yeah, which still um, all the people that I've encountered in the system, um, there's so much. Uh, I think when you're in an institution, when you're in that state of despair, um, there's mm. there's kind of no shame. Mm. You're, it's a vulnerable place to be in when you're in a, in a psychiatric hospital. And you meet some beautiful people, beautiful people that are just in absolute agony and despair and are completely misunderstood by society. And that is what drives me to do the work that I do every day. Um, And she wrote, the most beautiful people um, are those who have suffered loss, struggle, defeat, and have found their way out of their depths. These persons have a compassion and sensitivity and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people don't just happen. And I just think that that's so, Mm. I don't even need to have words for it. That is what drives me to do the mm. activism that I do every day. And I hope she's well, you know, wherever she is. Um, but I've had so many of those encounters. Um, and, yeah, that's such an unspoken topic, that the recovery in hospital mm. from your peers. That's, that's where mm. a lot of the recovery actually comes from, spending time with other people that are in pain um, or mm. that are misunderstood. Um, 
yeah, but I, I just think that that's that's so mm. true. Beautiful people don't just happen; they they mm. they come through and they rise from um, their mm. pain, their suffering. Very true. Yeah. And it's, it's very very hard to even like imagine like these people find other people that are very similar to them and, and going through the same sort of agony um, only in these institutions. Um, like why why does it have to get to that level? before before all this exactly. has to come out and, and you have to feel a sense of community because I think mm. a lot can be done proactively before that, that step happens. Um, so um, yeah. I, think, I think that's a wonderful way to finish off. Um, thank you for the conversation. Mm. Um, thank you for pushing your advocacy, um, not only uh, at a level in Australia but also globally as well. I have no doubt um, all your ambitions, um, especially with Tacfly and, and the integration with um, WHO and all the other advocacy that you're doing, um, will push the needle forward. Um, and I think, Matt, like we need more people like you. <laughs> um, and I, I feel so grateful to at least have shared this conversation and shared this space with you because, um, yeah, there's going to be some awesome goals that are going to be kicked over the next couple of years. So um, on that note, um, thank you again. Thanks for having me. It's been, um, yeah, it's been an emotional journey, but, uh, you know, a passionate emotional journey. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you, Sonny, for reaching out and holding space. And <laughs> we need more people like you. And, you know, we need more people like us that are there to do hardcore mm. grassroots social justice work. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> that's another conversation down i hope you guys enjoyed that one with matthew jackman as much as i did uh, matt spoke to some of the events that he's speaking at over the next couple of days as well as some in early november so uh, the one in november is an international one so i've put the, uh, all of them actually in the show notes below so please do check them out Next week, Mang takes the mic and sits down with Brendan Maha, who is the Global Director for Mental Health and Suicide Prevention at the Movember Foundation. So it's a pretty special one just as we come close to Movember. So I hope you guys stay tuned. Uh, follow us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn uh, at Bottled Up Oz uh, for all the latest news. We look forward to having you and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Bottled Up. <laughs>